the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcine Report Number 90 February 1973 A particular type of literature marked the beginning of the modern age, utopianism. One writer and scholar after another gave his version of the city of man, the man-created and man-planned society of the future. Thomas More, Francis Bacon, Campanella, Harrington, and many others wrote their accounts of how the world could be remade by man into a paradise. C.R.J. Rushdooney, The One and the Many, pages 266 to 276, Nutley, New Jersey, Craig Press, 1971. There had been no need for utopias in preceding centuries. Christian man already had his blueprint for the future in Scripture, and the way thereto, by faith and by obedience to God's law word, was clearly set forth. The utopias of the Renaissance expressed a new hope, and they looked to another god, the state. By capturing the state, philosopher kings could remake man and society into a happy and perfect order of life. The utopias were in part tracks aimed at persuading rulers and statesmen to allow their humanist scholars to guide them and the nations into the promised land. Van Reason, in an excellent chapter on, quote, utopias, unquote, commented, quote, The utopians are driven by homesickness for the lost paradise and long for the new earth. Their dreams are utopias, never to be realized, because they seek a road to such a paradise that does not pass along the station of the fall into sin, unquote. H. Van Reason, The Society of the Future, page 38, Philadelphia, Presbyterian and Reform Publishing Company, 1957-1972 Man is not seen as a sinner, nor does man need a savior. Man's need is for the expert, the elite mind, to take over man's life in all society and to reorganize all things in terms of his wisdom. Man, especially elite man, is beyond good and evil. Man must become his own maker, and in terms of the thinking of his philosophical and scientific elite, rethink all things and redefine the public good, happiness, profit, and justice. Van Riesen observed of Plato's Republic, the model of all utopias, quote, The argument of the Republic boils down to the contention that an ideal, just, communal life can be obtained and existing deficiencies and injustices can be corrected simply by permitting the state to organize society in terms of its own conception of justice. 
This is the key to Plato's reasoning. It is the basis of all utopias, including present-day socialistic proposals. Sin in society is to be overcome, paradise regained, an ideal state established, simply by employing human power in the central organization of society. Life is not to be redeemed by the Messiah, but by man, unquote. Abid, page 39. For utopian thinkers, the problems of man can all be solved by a different arrangement of things. Thomas More was close to the heart of all such utopianism when he located sin in the private ownership of property. Abolish private ownership, and man's problems and misery will disappear. Bacon added another central theme to the utopian myth. The scientific elite as the central planning agency to ensure a perfect society. The way was prepared by Moore, Bacon, and others for the communist theoreticians for Proudhon, who held that, quote, ownership is theft, unquote, and Karl Marx, who made science basic to his utopianism. At the same time, however, other humanists were beginning to torpedo their own hope. Nietzsche, as utopian as any, in his disillusionment and bitterness wrote the finish to utopianism by admitting that man is a beast of prey ruled by the will to power. He tried vainly to use the fact constructively but could not. It led only to nihilism. H.G. Wells, in The Time Machine, saw the future as a perverted one, with security destroying most men and the will to power destroying their rulers. Forster's celestial omnibus foresaw man's doom as scientific socialist man became the slave of his own creation, the machine. Even more devastating a picture was Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, 1932, which saw a status future in which man surrendered his freedom for a drug-controlled euphoria. Man, in his brave new world, lives only for today as a total existentialist. His slogans include, with regard to sex, quote, Do not put off till tomorrow the fun you can have today, unquote. Quote, Civilization is sterilization, unquote. Quote, Everyone belongs to everyone else, unquote, and so on. A ruler in this world is of the opinion that God exists. The people are kept from all knowledge of God. But God is not to be spoken of in a state of society. Quote, God is not compatible with machinery, scientific medicine, and universal happiness. Unquote. God is therefore replaced with Henry Ford as the originator of the assembly line. George Orwell, in 1984, saw the future in terms of Nietzsche's will to power. The goal of the state is not man's happiness, but power. Power means, quote, inflicting pain and humiliation. Power is in tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever, unquote. Page 203. According to Roland Huntford, in The New Totalitarians, we have the brave new world in Sweden, and 1984 in the Soviet Union. Other writers continued in the same vein, seeing only disaster ahead as a result of utopianism. 
Thus, Constantine Fitzgibbon, and when the kissing had to stop, gives a chilling picture of the hypocrisy and inability to face reality on the part of the utopians. Constantine Fitzgibbon, when the kissing had to stop, New Rochelle, New York, Arlington House, 1960 and 1973. The more deeply men commit themselves to the utopian dream, the less able are they to recognize their own depravity. The equation is a simple-minded and pharisaic one. I want what is best for humanity, and my idea of a peace-loving socialist state is the best and most moral order. Therefore, I am the best and most moral of men. Elliot Baker, in A Fine Madness, 1964, gives us another glimpse of the uses of power. A psychiatrist uses his position to perform a lobotomy on his wife's lover. This kind of tale right-wingers were discussing as a possibility. Now, a writer from another camp saw it as a logical aspect of the developing social order. The future was no longer seen as a new paradise, but as a nightmare. A telling account of the future as nightmare is a tale written not too long before the Russian Revolution of 1917 by Valerie Brutsov, The Republic of the Southern Cross. The setting is an ideal socialistic republic built sometime in the future at the South Pole. Star City, the capital, is exactly at the pole, but no star is visible because it is covered by an immense opaque roof. Everything works to perfection in terms of democratic socialist planning. Everything is uniform, clothing, buildings, and standard in construction, but all are happy since all their wants are met. The secret police were a real force, but men were gently conditioned into the right paths. The Republic of the Southern Cross was the dream utopia realized. Suddenly it collapses into anarchy as a mental malady overcomes everyone, mania contradictions, with people contradicting themselves. The stricken, instead of saying, quote, yes, unquote, say, quote, no, unquote. Wishing to say caressing words, they sputter hate and abuse. Nurses cut the throats of children. A concert violinist begins to scratch out dissonance. People abandon their homes in fear of the mobs. Youth runs wild, and their mothers do the same. Quote, the moral sense of the people declined with astonishing rapidity. Culture slipped from off these people like a delicate bark, and revealed man, wild and naked, the man-beast as he was. All sense of right was lost. Force alone was acknowledged. For women, the only law became that of desire and indulgence. Unquote. In the anarchy, quote, cannibalism took place, unquote. Valerie Brusoff, The Republic of the Southern Cross, page 25, New York, Robert M. McBride, 1919. A socialist society which ruled in terms of power, the Republic began as a large steel plant and bypasses morality, soon finds itself faced, Brusoff showed, with an amoral people who become the voice of raw, anarchistic power, and the result is a vast and nightmarish blood hunt. Organized power is contradicted by anarchistic power. The only reality recognized by the socialist state is power. It finally leaves nothing in the minds and lives of the people but the lust for contradicting power. 
Brusoff wrote his tale in the form of a news report by a writer piecing together stray pieces of information from the outside, and the picture which emerges is of startling depravity. The fiction writers, champions of man's goodness, have turned into reporters of his depravity and sin. Now, from the world of reality comes another telling report. J.A. Parker's Angela Davis, The Making of a Revolutionary, New Rochelle, New York, Arlington House, 1973. Parker writes as a Christian, one who cites the works of J. Gresham Macon as the great influence in his life. He cites evidence for the fact that revolutionists like the Jackson brothers were from a comfortable and good background, if anything, overprotected and overindulged. The problem is not one of injustice, but a contempt of truth and a search for power which, according to Mao Zedong, comes, quote, out of the barrel of a gun, unquote, page 104. Language is used as a tool for power, page 150. The appeal of the left, of Marxism and its examples in China and Russia, is not primarily for the dream of justice, but far more plainly in terms of the lust for power. This lust for power is motivated by a radical hatred and a contempt rather than a love of either the truth or of people. The only proper goal as held and visualized by these people is a revolution, quote, completely destroying the American social, political, and economic fabric and replacing it with one designed by the Communist Party, unquote. Page 77. The modern humanistic state has abandoned Christianity. It believes in a planning economy in technological rather than moral answers. It thus operates on a power basis, very rigorously under Marxism, and less rigorously by far in the democracies. But, as the socialism of the democracies increases, the rigor and the control increases. On both sides of the Iron Curtain, the mania contradictions, the contradiction of amoral power by amoral power, is increasing. The humanists everywhere, in the establishments and at war with the establishments, have denied the doctrine of original sin, but they have become prime examples of it. Their own literature testifies to this fact. They refuse, however, to take the logical step and to declare that this is sin, and it is exactly what Scripture says it is. To say so would require them logically to add that man needs the Savior. This they cannot and will not say, because for them, their Savior is the state, and the state is already on the scene. Their alternative to the state is anarchistic man, but Nietzsche has already described him as a beast of prey, driven by the will to power. Dostoevsky saw it clearly in his novel, The Possessed, a biting indictment of revolutionary socialism. The gods of modern man are really devils. Van Reesen, in criticizing Orwell's thesis in 1984, saw the issue clearly. However idealistic Orwell was, quote, his conception is that of a negative freedom, a freedom from tyranny. Orwell can oppose a nihilism of power by substituting for it the nihilism of freedom, the nihilism of Sartre. Therefore, he cannot stand firm in his freedom. Galatians 5, 1. Unquote. Society of the Future, page 66.
Utopianism is dying, and its hopes and dreams have turned into a nightmare. But the dreamers of utopia can only awaken from that nightmare through Christ. When a man awakens from a bad dream, it is often more real to him for a brief while than the reality around him, his home, familiar room, the slumbering dog at the side of his bed, and the familiar sound of the clock. Then after a few minutes or more, the nightmare has so faded that by morning he cannot even recall what it was. So it is with the culture. When men break with the culture, when its dream world of ideas suddenly loses all hold on them, its reality rapidly fades away. St. Paul summoned men to break with the dream world of their day, saying, quote, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Unquote. Ephesians 5.14 This is our task. Scatter the nightmare and bring in the light. Chalcedon Report number 91, March 1973 One of the key factors in any era is the attitude of the people. Men have often put up with great evils because they have been loyal to the system, and yet at other times men have resented trifles because of their hostility to the order, or because of their own inner restlessness. An interesting example of this is England after the Black Death. An intense discontent followed as the old order disintegrated and men felt out of place in the new. According to Sir Arthur Bryant, quote, Everyone tended to blame someone else for his sufferings, unquote. A vivid expression of this discontent was William Langland's Piers Plowman, often called, quote, The Vision of a People's Christ, unquote. Piers Plowman depicts corruption in church and state and contrasted undeserved wealth with undeserved destitution. Langland's poem presented a mild and reforming view which soon gave way to more radical answers. The later defrock priest John Ball declared, quote, Things will never go well in England so long as goods be not in common and so long as there be villains, serfs, and gentlemen. By what right are they whom we call lords greater than we? We are formed in Christ's likeness and they treat us like beasts, unquote. One of the most important ideas in the Western European tradition, one which has been especially important in England, Scotland, and the United States, is the medieval doctrine that, quote, law is not law unless it is the voice of equity, unquote. Gervais Matthew. From John of Salisbury to Langland, this was a powerful concept. It was basic to the outlook of John Knox in Scotland at a later date, and again important in the American colonies. Both a great measure of the vitality and progress of the West has been due to this concept as well as much of its troubles. Our Western liberties are rooted in this concept, and also many civil disobedience movements and revolutionary parties. One of those who misused the doctrine was John Ball. The monastic chronicler Walsingham tells us that Ball preached, quote, those things which he knew would be pleasing to the common people speaking evil both of ecclesiastical and temporal lords, and won the goodwill of the common people, rather than merit in the sight of God. For he taught that tithes ought not to be paid unless he who gave them was richer than the person who received them. 
He also taught that the tithes and oblations should be withheld if the parishioner was known to be a better man than the priest, unquote. The age of Richard II, 1367 to 1400, had real evils and problems to contend with. Du Boulay has declared, however, that the era did see economic and social advances. The problem lay elsewhere. The authorities did not take the dissatisfaction of the people seriously and the people now did not view matters theologically. The appeal of John Ball was a humanistic one. It was not the relationship of rulers and people to God's law that he stressed, but the questions of wealth and status. The result was a rebellion, and the people who had begun with Piers Plowman, the, quote, people's Christ, unquote, chose as their leader Watt Tyler, an ex-soldier who had since than been earning his living by highway robbery. A contemporary chronicler wrote of John Ball's program for the insurgents, quote, He strove to prove that from the beginning all men were created equal by nature, and that servitude had been introduced by the unjust oppression of wicked men against God's will. For if it had pleased him to create serfs, surely in the beginning of the world he would have decreed who was to be a serf and who a lord. Wherefore they should be prudent men, and with the love of a good husbandman tilling his fields, and uprooting and destroying the tares which choked the grain, they should hasten to do the following things. First, they should kill the great lords of the kingdom. Second, they should slay lawyers, judges, and jurors. Finally, they should root out all those whom they knew to be likely to be harmful to the commonwealth in future. Thus they would obtain peace and security. For when the great ones had been removed, there would be equal liberty and nobility and dignity and power for all. Unquote. The chronicler added, quote, When he had preached this and much other madness, the commons held him in such high favor that they acclaimed him the future archbishop and chancellor of the realm. Unquote. John Ball's program has a familiar ring. First, it was a gospel of salvation by equality. Second, evil was seen as the characteristic of a particular class, and a theory of class conflict was preached. Third, to solve society's problems, Ball held, eliminate the evil class and all will be well. The call for justice had now become a cry for mass murder as the way of salvation. The ruling classes responded with no less a fallacious doctrine. First, it was progressively held that virtue and power were a class monopoly, and the monarchy claimed more and more of this for itself in the succeeding generations. Second, evil was seen as the especial property of the lowborn, especially those who might speak of equality in any sense. The word villain, meaning serf and related to village, came to be our modern word villain. The common people were villains, thieves, and robbers. In our day, race has intensified this idea. Third, to solve society's problem, it was held that it was important for the right people to rule. Fourth, as against John Ball's idea of salvation by mass executions, the rulers held to salvation by legislation. In 1349 and 1350, attempts were made to freeze wages and control labor. However, as Du Boulay noted, quote, 
Solemn laws do not stem such rising tides. C.F.R.H. Du Boulet, An Age of Ambition, New York, Viking Press, 1970, Gervais Matthew, The Court of Richard II, New York, Norton, 1968, Sir Arthur Bryant, The Fire and the Rose, Garden City, New York, Doubleday, 1966. Then, as now, society floundered from crisis to crisis, searching for answers. It looked, however, for both problems and answers in the wrong place, and hence aggravated its problems. Both the rulers and the ruled were clearly a part of the problem rather than the answer. Sir Arthur Bryant called the problem, quote, spiritual, unquote, and a, quote, sickness of soul, unquote. The peasants resented the controls over them, and yet also demanded that something be done for them, and the same attitude marks our own day, and with far less excuse. Andrews has observed that, quote, the power to do things for you is also the power to do things to you, unquote. Page 33. In every era, to ask for benefits is to ask for bondage. The origin of serfdom was in the Roman Empire. In exchange for cradle-to-grave security, people surrendered themselves and their possessions to the imperial estates and called it salvation. As Ramsey stated it, quote, The salvation of Jesus and Paul was freedom. The salvation of the imperial system was serfdom. Sir W.M. Ramsey, quote, the imperial salvation, unquote. In his The Bearing of Recent Discovery on the Trustworthiness of the New Testament, page 198, London, Hodder and Stoughton, 1914-1920. Salvation is still seen as serfdom, as cradle-to-grave security by all too many people. The theoreticians of statism do understand one fact, as Andrews noted, and it is this. Quote, work is power, and the modern trend is of necessity to subject power to increase social regulation and supervision. Unquote. Matthew Page, Andrews, Social Planning by Frontier Thinkers, page 57, New York, Richard R. Smith, 1944. Exactly. Work is power, and properly understood and directed is essential and basic to God's kingdom and man's exercise of dominion under God. The control of the future always depends to a large degree on motivating and governing work. If the state governs work, then we have a statist order and a decline of social energy as men sullenly withhold cooperation from the state, as in the Marxist empires. If man governs their work, then men are as powerful as the motives which provide the fuel for their work. But men who have the mala and, quote, sickness of soul, unquote, Bryant spoke of, are better at sterile protest than at productive work. Moreover, then as now, there is a strong correlation between protest, lawlessness, and theft. The connection is a logical and natural one. When a man wants things on demand rather than in return for work, theft is a logical consequence of his demands. The sins of the rulers are no less, and in fact are greater. The prophet Ezekiel gives us God's indictment of the rulers of Israel, saying, quote, The diseased have ye not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which was sick, neither have ye bound up that which was broken, 
neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. Unquote. Ezekiel 34, 4. Instead of being shepherds protecting the flock from hostile forces, the rulers have been wolves preying on them. As in the 14th century, rulers offer laws as the solution to problems they have helped to create. The great sin of the modern state and its theoreticians is the pretense of moral and religious neutrality, whereby humanism has been introduced as the new value in the new established religion. However, as Orton observed, quote, it is simply impossible to maintain in either pure theory or practice that the state is by nature a moral, that is, morally neuter, unquote. Page 24. Moreover, Orton pointed out, quote, every major political system rests on an act of affirmation as to the nature of man. The affirmation it embodies is therefore by nature moral rather than political or economic, unquote. Page 55. It follows that, quote, the central concern of the state is therefore, in the widest sense, justice, not power, not even prosperity. The state is the social structure through which our sense of right becomes articulate and effective, unquote. Page 59. The state in its law structure is a theological establishment. It represents a doctrine of man, law, and ultimacy. The control of the state today by, quote, organized atheism, unquote, is simply a new form of religious establishment. Quote, in the sphere of values, it is simply not possible to be neutral, neither individually nor collectively, unquote. William Eilat Orton, The Economic Role of the State, page 31F, Chicago, University of Chicago Press, 1950. One more important comment from Orton, quote, for it is the essence of the Christian position that there are limits both extensive and intensive to the scope and exercise of secular authority. I do not need to remind the reader of the history of this issue, but I do need to emphasize the fact that it is uniquely Christian tradition and that whenever and wherever it is denied, the community ceases in both theory and practice to be Christian. Its values as well as its policies undergo a radical change. Unquote. Page 29. It is this change we have been undergoing since the Enlightenment of the 18th century, and we now are approaching its end results. The future will not be commanded by protest. Then in the 14th century, as now in the 20th, it is sterile and destructive. Similarly, barren status power is again effective only in controls and destruction. Only as our thinking, our faith, and our values are again informed and governed by the Word of God, and only as we recognize again that work is power, and we work productively and effectively in terms of freedom under God, will we again have the motive force to redirect men and nations. Sterile men are governed by their fears and hates. Productive men are governed by faith for living. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushby. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus.
was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he has shown us by his pain the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree where he died for you and me. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. 
May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.